0: 36 of Lime Ninja Radio. I am your host, McKay Rippey, and with me is Aurora. Hello. And this week we're continuing our best of series, and we're rebroadcasting an interview with Dr. Alan McDonald. And if you haven't heard this interview, you're really going to want to listen to it. And if you have heard it, you might want to listen to it again. There's so much incredibly great stuff. Dr. McDonald is a wealth of information about Lyme disease, and particularly its connection with Alzheimer's. So,
1: without further ado,
0: without further ado, here's Dr. McDonald.
2: Well, I'm happy to be um, with you to uh, speak about issues in um, Lyme Borreliosis and maybe to discuss some of the uh, highlights of uh, the recent European meeting in um, Oslo, Norway and also the uh, symposium that was held in London, uh, London, England, on the uh, 7th of June.
0: Sounds like a great lineup. But before we dive in to give people a little bit of background, you're you're a pathologist, correct, by training?
2: Yes, I'm a pathologist. Um, So pathology is a specialty that is uh, hospital-based, and uh, we work with all of the specialties, And our role is to make um, uh, diagnoses and to assist the specialists in um, evaluating their patients using laboratory methods. So So we have to speak the language of the specialists and understand what they're all about and um, then assist them in getting answers for um, what the diagnosis might be uh, for their patients who have a problem. That hasn't been resolved, or um, how patients are doing in response to therapy, and sometimes uh, we also do autopsies and we see from the autopsy whether uh, the diagnoses that were uh, made while the patient was alive are complete or incomplete, or whether they're completely correct or slightly incorrect or completely off base. So that's uh, some of what we do, and we're quality control officers for the medical staff.
0: That's a great explanation. Thank you. And what got you interested in pathology?
2: I started my career in internal medicine, and I had um, some uh, very difficult experiences internship hours. I was working 120 hours a week, um, and I realized that I didn't function very well without sleep. So I uh, realized that I needed to get eight hours of sleep every night uh, to feel uh, well and to do a good job. So I uh, switched out of um, internal medicine and went into pathology uh, after doing one of those every other night, all night, um, internships where you're up for 120 hours, then you go home and get eight hours sleep, then you go back and and uh, do the same job over and over again. So Sounds- I, uh, I, I came to it by necessity because of my need to get a, a good sound sleep every night.
0: I don't think uh, a lack of sleep has shown up on any pathologist report, has it? It should.
2: I think... Uh, some people don't need a lot of sleep, and some people do. I I just happen to be one of those who does better if I get a good uh, good night's sleep.
0: Yeah, fa- fabulous. Me too. I need my s- less than seven and a half. I'm no good. Uh, and I have pa- I have patients who uh, need uh, nine or ten. But I I think that well you know
2: since since those days uh, they had the unfortunate death of Andy Warhol and and New York uh, Hospital. And uh, that was uh, a sad uh, tragedy, uh, which was traced back to um, some of the uh, house staff uh, working crazy hours and not being able to uh, uh, you know, follow him as carefully as they could have followed him. So his, his death was an unnecessary death, and it was traced back to overwork of uh, the um, hospital staff. And after that happened, uh, they passed a law that uh, you couldn't work people for 120 hours and send them back for eight hours sleep anymore. You had to, uh, um, you know, put limits on how many hours they could work. Just like airline pilots, uh, people who drive, uh, you know, um, freight trains and things like that. They have a maximum number of hours that they're allowed to work. And and they keep a logbook. And and, uh, so it's not just medical. It's a lot of other professions. They don't want to have people who are operating, um, you know, transportation uh, and then maybe subject to falling asleep at the wheel. Right.
0: Right. So then what led you to Lyme disease?
2: In 1981, I was at Southampton Hospital. Southampton Hospital is uh, uh, very close to the area in Long Island where the um, uh, the tick uh, that had uh, been dissected by Dr. Uh, Willie Bergdorfer uh, was found to have spirochetes in its gut. And uh, so the discovery of Lyme disease was uh, made by uh, some careful field work in uh, Chelter Island, which is about 10 miles from Southampton Hospital. So we were in the middle of tick heaven in the 80s, and we had a huge, huge uh, problem with tick-borne disease, not only with uh, Borrelia Lyme disease, but with BCS and Mountain spotted fever and other tick-borne diseases. And uh, we were interested in uh, learning more about it. The uh, article came out in 1982, uh, which uh, that uh, was the article written in the New England Journal, which then put the spirochete on the map as the cause of Lyme disease. Prior to that time, they had no idea what, what it was due to. They thought it was perhaps a virus, and uh, really did favor a virus uh, for many years, from 1975 to 1981. The folks at Yale really believed that a virus was the cause of uh, the uh, problem in uh, Lyme, Connecticut, uh, with the arthritis and the other things that the children were experiencing. So uh, this was a dramatic shift because um, uh, with the identification of a a spirochete uh, bacteria, uh, then uh, the the mandate was to treat uh, bacterial infection with antibiotics. Up until that time, they'd been giving uh, patients um, who needed uh, treatment uh, steroids. And steroids are the worst thing you can do if you have a bacterial infection. Uh, That's exactly the opposite of what you should do if you have a bacterial infection. You need to have proper antibiotics for the bacteria.
0: And can you explain to people why that is?
2: Well, steroids knock down your immune system so that uh, you don't get a full immune response. And uh, it interferes with the synthesis of antibodies, interferes with white cell uh, activities which are part of the immune response uh, so once the bug gets into your body your body would uh, if there are no uh, extra steroids uh, being given would would uh, either produce antibodies and try to deal with the infection with antibodies or it would uh, produce a lot of white cells and the white cells would, would try to uh, kill the uh, bacteria uh, directly by uh, the activity of the white cells so the two parts of the immune system are the white cell arm the cellular arm and the humoral arm or the antibody arm and those two things work together to try to keep infections from getting out of hand Uh, antibiotics uh, help uh, shorten all uh, um, infections by stopping the bacteria from being able to reproduce so you either have cell wall interfering um, antibiotics those are cell wall active drugs like penicillin or you have Uh, antibiotics that interfere with the synthesis of proteins, and those are ribosomal antibiotics like tetracycline, doxycycline. And then there are some other uh, families of uh, antibiotics, uh, DNA gyrase inhibitors and other ones that are uh, newer. But in general, antibiotics uh, work by stopping the bug from making more of itself. So uh, it prevents it from... uh, uh, growing uncontrolled and, uh, you know, uh, producing a more uh, serious medical problem than if you, uh, you know, didn't get antibiotics. And if you, especially if you got steroids, the bugs would have a real uh, head start and uh, it might actually make a mild disease a very severe and life-threatening disease.
0: So was there pushback from Yale and the researchers there, when you announced, or your your colleagues announced I, that I it was bacteria,
2: I, I didn't. I didn't uh, actually hear anything. Uh, I know that there was uh, some grumbling um, about it because uh, uh, Yale wanted to uh, continue to control uh, Lyme disease since they had given it a name, and then they've written. A series of papers, and all the papers that were written were, were good papers. They were clinical uh, descriptions of the, the knee joint problem, or the uh, meningitis problem, and heart uh, slowing, uh, heart block problem, or um, uh, the facial nerve uh, Bell's palsy, the facial droop. All those were good papers. They were all uh, clinical descriptions of what they saw in the patients who came to them. And uh, none of those papers were, uh, were, uh, in hindsight, erroneous. Uh, you know, they described uh, the disease in different parts of the body, and they noticed that sometimes the disease would pop up uh, in two parts of the body at the same time, like the knee and the facial nerve would both kind of uh, show symptoms uh, in a close uh, time frame to each other, or they would have... A uh, pairing of uh, slow heartbeat with uh, maybe a, a red patch on the skin, the erythema migrans. Um, but uh, the credit for the discovery of the actual cause goes to uh, Rocky Mountain Lab and Dr. Bergdorfer, who is the person uh, for whom the uh, spirochete is named. Borrelia Bergdorferi is uh, named in his honor. So he gets the credit for the discovery of the cause and for changing the course of medicine from giving steroids to giving antibiotics. Major, major contribution and major change. It's like a 180 degree turnaround in uh, the way Lyme disease was uh, was, uh, treated.
0: He saved a lot of suffering.
2: Yes, uh, I think that he uh, made it possible for other discoveries to be made. Uh, but uh, one of the uh, one of the things that happened as a result of uh, identifying the bug as a bacterium, the spirochete, was that they uh, then developed uh, blood testing, where the uh, spirochetes were put on glass slides, and and the blood from the patient was layered over the slides, and They would look for the uh, antibodies, that's the humeral, the uh, antibody side of the immune system. They would look for antibodies in the blood to see if they were at a high level uh, in patients who might have Lyme disease. And then if the level was high enough in the blood testing, then they would say, well, yes, the blood test in the lab confirms the suspicion that the patient is suffering from Lyme disease. And not from something else like, uh, you know, a viral infection. Um, unfortunately, the blood tests are, um, to this day, uh, imperfect. And uh, what what happened was that people, in effect, uh, stopped looking clinically and started looking to the blood testing to do all the diagnosis work for them. And because the blood testing wasn't good uh, at the 100% level or the 90% level, it was maybe at the 50% level, it was somewhat okay. Uh, the opportunity to uh, make new clinical diagnoses, which had been the way we had all the progress from 1975 to 1981, that stopped more or less in its tracks. And uh, uh, there were... Um, repercussions where uh, guidelines were formulated and they came under the Centers for Disease Control and they started to make uh, guidelines for what they thought was good Lyme medical practice. And the guidelines uh, the CDC uh, wrote down are on the website today and you can see them there. And uh, they have gone beyond the stage of being guidelines or um, Hints or uh, helpful uh, suggestions. They've gone into the area where there are uh, uh, where there now rules. And if you uh, encounter a case of Lyme disease, which does not drop into the proper CDC set of rules, uh, you won't get coverage from an insurance company, and you won't ha- get uh, uh, counted as uh, you know having uh, Lyme disease. So you can have. Uh, problems with the rules because the rules have been very strict.
0: Now, is that the CDC or is that the doctors interpreting the CDC?
2: Well, the CDC more or less leads in many in many ways, and medicine more or less follows. And one of the things insurance companies like is that the uh, the rules that the CDC had uh, on its website and still have today um, make it uh, easy for them to um, avoid paying for medical care for people who have Lyme disease, but uh, types of Lyme disease that don't follow all of the CDC rules. And one of the biggest bugaboos is that uh, you can have uh, a mild case and have uh, uh, short-term illness where it's uh, taken care of with uh, short course of antibiotics or you can have a stubborn case Uh, and the stubborn case then doesn't respond to short-term antibiotics it requires some other therapies and that uh, may go on to chronic uh, a chronic illness and there's a great dispute about uh, whether chronic illnesses and Lyme disease are believable or medically justifiable and the CDC takes a position that they are not um they also take the position that uh for all intents and purposes uh Lyme disease doesn't exist south of the Mason Dixon line, it, it's a, a condition that happens along the New England, uh uh New York, um Minnesota, Wisconsin, northern states and uh doesn't happen in Missouri, for instance, or doesn't happen in Texas. Florida. Uh Florida, yeah. So <laughs> There are are states now where, uh, because of the CDC rules, uh, you're not allowed to make a diagnosis of Lyme disease. Even if somebody has lived part of their life in, let's say, New York and got Lyme disease in New York and then retired to Florida and then popped up with the disease, they'd have a great deal of trouble uh, getting that uh, taken care of because of the CDC rules, which says that there is no... Uh, disease in Florida. It is uh, justifiably called uh, Lyme disease.
0: That's ridiculous.
2: Well, uh, I didn't say that. You said <laughs> that. But, uh, I understand know,
0: people,
2: that. <laughs> people people do move uh, in this country every six years. Yeah. Uh, the moving companies are very happy about that. People relocate for jobs. They relocate for education. They relocate for retirement. So they don't uh, spend their entire life uh, in the uh, area where they were you know, children are growing up or, you know, that they can do military service in, uh, overseas areas where Lyme disease has, uh, uh, you know, lots of activity like in Germany and, uh, in the army, the, uh, all the military bases are near the black forest in Germany where there's lots of ticks and lots of Lyme disease. Okay. So you could do military service, get infected in Germany, come out, get discharged from the military and have a European form and come back and, uh, You'll have trouble with that, too, because the European type of uh, spirochete is different from the ones that are here in the U.S., so right. the blood tests don't really work very well in picking up those European infections if you're coming back from military service and you're back in the States. So there are lots of gaps. and There are, and, uh, there are, there are uh, lots of rules, and there are lots of politics, and people... Uh, have support groups and uh, they keep in touch with each other over the internet and they share stories and people would uh, discuss the problems with the present system and discuss how they would like to see uh, a better system uh, and a better blood test or a better way of diagnosing it so they could get the care that they really wish to get and uh, they wish to get uh, recognition for chronic uh, illnesses of Lyme uh, like uh, or co-infections, uh, Lyme plus Babesia or Lyme plus some of the other tick-borne pathogens, they want to get recognition for all these things, which are more or less orphan categories under the CDC uh, set of rules. And the insurance companies uh, love the rules from the CDC because they uh, do restrict access for a lot of people to get medical care if they don't follow the rules rigorously.
0: Yes. Now, tell me, that's a great summation kind of, of where Lime started and, and a bit of where we are. Now, did you attend these conferences?
2: Well, uh, this are you year reading the reports in, from uh, them? in Europe, there were uh, two conferences that I was invited to attend and to be part of the faculty. Uh, the first was in Norway, in Oslo, Norway. And that was a two-day summit in Oslo, which uh, brought together people who are knowledgeable about Lyme disease and who are uh, U.S.-trained and uh, U.S.-practicing physicians. So we we brought some of the knowledge from our U.S. experience, you know, uh, tens of thousands of patients. You know, we had 140 years of collective experience uh, dealing with Lyme and diagnosis and treatment among the faculty to... uh, to the uh, country of Norway where they have the same political problems that we have, uh, and, and the States only they have, uh, uh theirs is worse. Uh, they don't have any doctors who are trained and who have seen 12,000 patients in their practice. They have, uh, doctors who are really very, um, not up to date in uh, Lyme science and Lyme, uh, care or Lyme medicine. So we, we went over as more or less a, um, uh, Marshall uh, plan to uh, give some education to the uh, people in Norway who were interested in learning about uh, how we see Lyme disease in the U.S. There was a, a similar meeting in um, London, England, uh, and that was uh, later on uh, in early uh, June. And uh, once again, we had an a invited panel of people uh, from the U.S. who were uh, on the lecture circuit and uh, who have a lot of experience with Lyme. and we, we gave a program to uh, the British um, uh, doctors who attended the conference, and it was uh, put on videotape, so they'll be able to watch it if they want to and learn a little bit about Lyme disease. Now to give you an example of how far behind the people in the United Kingdom are as compared to US, the US has bumped up the number of cases, uh, new cases of Lyme disease. Um, you know, from thirty uh, thousand new cases a year to three hundred thousand cases new cases a year, the CDC just allowed that that bump up to happen so it it in a stroke of a pen said, well, the actual number of cases uh, new cases in, in the United States is now thirty thousand a year three hundred thousand a year and uh, to compare now with uh, Germany uh, Germany has one million Uh, patient visits for Lyme disease care, new cases uh, per year in the country of Germany. The United Kingdom has 64 million people in it. And um, I think uh, for many years they would uh, have 200 cases for 64 million souls in the United Kingdom that they would begrudgingly accept as Lyme disease. They said that they really don't have a Lyme disease problem. Uh, That is not true because there's a lot of... um, uh, traffic from uh, Heathrow Airport to Germany by people who are seeking Lyme care and know they can't get it in the United Kingdom so they they travel to Germany or they travel to France and they go where where the doctors are knowledgeable um, so there is there is a, a political divide and uh, it does come down in each of the countries where the numbers of Lyme cases are low it comes down to politics uh, which are um, under the influence of the health regulatory authorities for the country. And uh, in the uh, country of Norway, for instance, there is a uh, cap on the uh, um, number of antibiotic doses uh, that can be imported. All of their antibiotics have to be imported because they don't have pharmaceutical companies in Norway, so they have to import them every year and they have a, they have a, a maximum number of doses that they will allow to be brought in.
0: To so they treat. Have to ration.
2: Yeah, it's rationing, right. Wow. So, so what the poor Norwegian people have to do is to go over the mountains, uh, in, you know, uh, their cars and, uh, buy the antibiotics in Sweden and then smuggle them back across, uh, the mountains and hope that police don't intercept them. Uh, that sounds very, uh, bizarre, but that's the way things are.
0: Sounds East uh, European. <laughs>
2: from uh from well, those days. It, it's 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 just uh the way things are and uh, we hope that things will change and that uh they will start to recognize um what they have. Uh they do have the ticks. Uh they do have uh the infection in the ticks. They do have people who have uh, advanced cases of Lyme disease that can put them in wheelchairs or worse. Uh, They have all of the things that you would expect to see in a country with tick-borne diseases uh, because they're a country that has lots of water and birds carry ticks, and then they drop them off and they establish uh, hotspots of the the infection. So all the Scandinavian countries have a problem with tick-borne diseases, and Lyme disease is one of them.
0: I just spoke with a woman in uh, in Sweden, outside of um, Stockholm, and uh, she said she first noticed symptoms uh, of Lyme disease 25 years ago.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that... And
0: just recently got diagnosed within the past couple of years.
2: I think that's a story that you hear uh, when you do, do speak with patients. Um, but you know, once again, the problem is the politics of allowing a disease that the health authority says cannot be chronic, allowing chronic cases into the health system and blessing them and saying, yes, you do have a chronic condition and it is due to Lyme and or other tick-borne infections and they need to be dealt with and treated properly.
0: So what will it take to change that?
2: Well, I think there uh, probably will be education uh, and uh, there will be uh, hopefully political action to convince the health authority to be less uh, limiting in their uh, set of rules uh, to allow antibiotics that can be used to treat the condition to be available to the country so they don't have to go across the mountains from Norway to uh, Sweden to... Uh, bring in penicillin or uh, bring in doxycycline, which are rationed in Norway. Uh, it sounds bizarre, but that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, we empathize with them and we, uh, we hope that things will change for the better.
0: Now, moving along, so w- this whole idea of chronic Lyme disease, where, where does your work with biofilms come into this?
2: All right, well, Dr. Eva Shapi and I have worked together on uh, the idea that Borrelia spirochetes could exist in a biofilm form. Now, the textbooks will tell you, if you uh, refer to them, that uh, 99.9% of bacteria on the planet, under conditions of stress or, you know, uh, challenge or starvation or adverse conditions will revert to a protective biofilm community which uh, enables the bugs to survive periods of difficult uh, you know either loss of food supply or um, exposure to antibiotics and and it enables the bugs to continue to uh, uh, perpetuate themselves and biofilms are really just communities of microbes they don't have to be pure. They can be mixtures of bacteria. And they are surrounded by a, um, a matrix, which is sort of like a glue substance that holds them together. And then they are uh, nu- uh, nourished by um, water channels that uh, allow uh, nutrients to come in uh, and then waste materials to flow out like through through a sewer system. And these biofilms then are the way that the bugs survive. Dr. Schrapp and I, did a lot of work, work with, with some of her expert uh, research colleagues at the University of New Haven. And it took us six years to get the biofilm of Borrelia paper published because uh, biofilms are by definition only associated with chronic. And you know what we have, uh, we have a problem with chronic, don't we? And Lyme is
0: chronic in patient. Yes.
2: So if you allow biofilms to be published then you're opening the door to allow chronic to become credible. And uh, you wouldn't believe the amount of uh, opposition that uh, was thrown in our way to try to prevent the biofilm paper from being published. And uh, you know, biofilms are first and foremost um, microbes' way of um, coping and staying in the body and being chronic. Uh, So when we got the biofilm paper published, uh, we had a major hurdle, which we uh, then established a new, um, what would you say, it's like Normandy, uh, you know, uh, charging up the cliffs of Normandy. We had a new beachhead, and we uh, got past the machine guns, and uh, we established that uh, Borrelia um, lime does form biofilms, and that uh, not only in the test tube, but also in the human body. And that uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, chronic is a problem for some people with Lyme disease, because they have gone on to a biofilm stage of the infection. So that's the quick history of biofilms.
0: So, uh, good. Let, uh, me, let me ask you a question about the, the publishing. So uh, it seems sometimes like publishing is the blood sport of uh, science. And what? So, when you say there were impediments to you publishing, what what happened? Were you just rejected over and over again?
2: Yeah. So, I think that you have to realize that, uh, as in insurance-related uh, health payments, uh, there is a um, power elite uh, in the publishing arena, and uh, if you are not aware of, uh, the publishing, uh, rules, uh, or the, uh, prohibitions, uh, what you things you're not allowed to publish, uh, then you'll be frustrated and you won't get your work, uh, into a, uh, a good journal. Uh, or you'll never get it published because it's politically incorrect. So, uh, we had, uh, six years of, uh, you know, uh, roadblocks and uh, uh, rejections and uh, all the things that can happen when uh, there's a political opposition to science that you're presenting, which is good science. And we did very good science. There's no question that the science was solid. But the implications of the uh, result, which is biofilm, which then makes chronic legitimate in Lyme disease, That was too much for us to uh, get through uh, many editors and many uh, journal review panels. So we finally published in a journal called uh, PLOS One, which is a very respected academic journal. And it was reviewed uh, by people in Europe. But uh, we couldn't really get it published in uh, many of the uh, medical or scientific journals that are based in the United States because of the opposition... Uh, by the publishing uh, power elite. Uh, it was just not going to happen that we would publish in, for instance, the New England Journal of Medicine or uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. We, we wouldn't be able to get through the uh, opposition to uh, this, uh, this new concept. And that's the way it is for many things. Many, many new ideas are uh, steadfastly opposed for many, many years, and then when they're finally published, uh, people will say, oh, yes, it was always obvious. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's true. You know, of course, I mean, it's like, uh, that, that, that's child's play. And that happened with uh, the helicobacter story uh, with the ulcers and the stomach troubles. Right. Helicobacter folks uh, had the same sort of roadblocks. And uh, they, uh, you know, pers- pers- persevered, and, uh, and they got a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, so some things that are very difficult to publish wind up being uh nobel prize type uh step uh, giant step forward uh type uh contributions and the the basic um, situation in medicine and science is that people are basically conservative and uh they're reluctant to uh, embrace uh dramatic ideas that make you go 180 degrees in the direction opposite from the direction that you've been trained to follow. And uh, you know some examples of that are you know, like in breast surgery. They used to say, well, we have to take off the breast and all the muscles down to the bone and all the lymph nodes in the armpit, and you wind up with this horrendous swelling of the arm, edema of the arm, and that's the only way to treat breast cancer, the hyper-radical... Uh, treatment of breast cancer well that's what happened for many many years and many many patients were mutilated by such surgery and that came from centers such as Johns Hopkins that that was the teaching and over the years we've learned that you don't have to mutilate the patient uh, that you can treat the patient conservatively and they're removing less and less breast tissue not disfiguring the patient and uh, patients are doing very well thank you very much with a lot less uh, surgery. But in order to get that done with publications, there was a second and shovel, you know, pitch battle, uh, you know, to oppose what was written in the textbook and what, what had been there for, for uh, decades and generations and, and come up with a new idea. Um, but that's the way things work in, in science and in medicine. Sometimes, sometimes ideas that are, Uh, radical uh, revisions of what we think is the truth uh, are hard to get, uh, you know, uh, embraced and, uh, you know, uh, accepted.
0: Thank you. That's that's really well said. Uh, Dr. McDonald, thank you so much for your time. And as a way of wrapping up, is there anything that I didn't give you a chance to get into that you'd like to that you'd like to talk about.
2: All right. Well, I'll just give you a quick little um, update in my research. I've been doing Alzheimer's research for uh, 30 years, and um, my research has taken me uh, along the the pathway that uh, syphilis uh, and dementia related to syphilis uh, took. And so I used all of that to help, do experiments to see if Borrelia could do damage to the brain, which would produce dementia. And I proved in 1985, 86, 87, 88, 89 that, that that was possible. And I published those papers. And I continue to do my work, and I'm using you know, DNA probes now to look at the Alzheimer's brain. I'm finding the DNA of the Borrelia spirochete in Alzheimer brain tissue in the areas where the disease is. Present in the brain, Alzheimer plaques, and I've uh, uh, recently discussed uh, an elaboration and a refinement of that theory, and, and it, it says that that the uh, Alzheimer plaques, which are round areas of damage in the brain, are actually biofilms of Borrelia. No kidding, They're colonies of communities of infection in the Alzheimer brain. And you know what response I'm going to get with that.
0: Uh, Yeah, I can predict.
2: But if people opt to try antibiotics and they get a favorable result, then there won't be too much discussion because right now there is nothing to do for Alzheimer's disease except wait until the patient passes away. Right. So if we can take some of it and make it an infectious disease and a biofilm disease, which is what I think it is in some cases, uh, it will uh, change the entire face of uh, Alzheimer medicine.
0: It sure will.
2: And, uh, millions of people—that's M, millions with an M—in this country and worldwide, billions with a B—stand uh, to gain a therapy that could make them whole again and stop what's going to kill our health care system with uh, the costs of Alzheimer's care. Absolutely, And not, not to say anything about the uh, emotional and the terrible, tragic uh, personal lives being destroyed. So that, in a nutshell, is where I am and where we're headed with my research. And we'll see if uh, 10 years from now I can get that published.
0: So it leaves me with two questions with that. So the the first is uh, on the tissue where you've analyzed that, is that from cadavers or is that some?
2: Yeah, you always do research uh, in Alzheimer's disease on donated brains from brain banks. And I get my uh, tissues from the Harvard University brain bank. So uh, they've already made the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. They take the brain, they freeze half of it, and they process the other half for routine study. So they, they, they firmly established that the brain is an Alzheimer's brain, and they, they, they put a, a grade on it. There's, there's uh, uh, BRAC uh, grades, uh, stages one through six. So I, I work with the most advanced cases of Alzheimer's disease in uh, donated brains so that I can obtain for study from the Harvard Green Bank. And I've grown the uh, Borrelia from uh, thawed, frozen, Alzheimer brain tissue. Uh, and I've done that um, in many, many cases now. And I've also used um, PCR, which is the DNA amplification, to prove that the Borrelia DNA is in the brain. And I've gotten DNA sequencing to prove that the isolated amplified DNA is actually by DNA sequencing, which is a fingerprinting way of looking at the DNA, Borrelia DNA and not human DNA. Right. So I've dotted all the I's class t's, and uh, presented my papers, and uh, I'm waiting for uh, somebody to take up the baton and say, all right, there's nothing we can offer you uh, in terms of, medicines except maybe we could try some antibiotics and see if we can make you stop your decline or even reverse the disease so that you were able to do mentally things that you could not do before you started an antibiotic therapy. That was done with the syphilis dementia and that was done with penicillin and so all of the people who had syphilis dementia after World War II were treated with penicillin and syphilis dementia vanished from the face of the earth. And uh, so it could be done with syphilis. I'm sure it could be done with a certain case, certain number of cases of Alzheimer's disease. All the people who were career syphilis uh, medical doctors had to find another uh, line of work because penicillin made their specialty obsolete.
0: I think they got into heart disease.
2: <laughs> well, they did that, or maybe dermatology. You can make a nice living as a dermatologist. <laughs>
0: that's true. So okay.
2: that's it. Uh, yeah, that's a capsule, but uh, syphilis is the model. Uh, dementia and syphilis, that's real. It's gone now because of penicillin treatment. And uh, we have a dementia problem now, which is galloping and gathering speed and we have nothing to offer for it. Um, Antibiotics are safe. Uh, They're relatively cheap. Right. Uh, Less expensive than Aricep and uh, uh, Namenda and all the other uh, Alzheimer pills that slow you down a little bit, but uh, you die just at the end anyway.
0: So with the antibiotics, is is there any specific... uh, class that's needed to get past the blood brain barrier
2: yes if you give enough antibiotics uh in a high enough dose by vein uh you can get over uh and pass the blood brain barrier
0: okay so it's a matter of saturation
2: yeah and that's the same thing with syphilis i mean how did you get penicillin into the syphilitic brain and kill those kill the spirochetes you gave him a big whopping dose of penicillin for a long period of time and you killed all spirochetes all and the people who were uh, very, very cognitively impaired woke up and they eradicated the dementia of syphilis. Nobody today in practice has seen a case of uh, syphilis dementia. I
0: think, they
2: have HIV, HIV dementias, right. you know, they have uh, dementias due to uh, other conditions Uh, which are infectious. Uh, And, of course, syphilis is the granddaddy of all of the infectious dementias. So syphilis is the first cousin of Borrelia. They're both spirochetes. They both love the brain, and they both can rot the brain. (laughs) And there's appropriate sequences of uh, activity. And they both can be treated with antibiotics, and you can do a lot of good with antibiotics when you have a bad infection in the brain. And to not treat really is, I think, unethical, especially if you have nothing else to offer.
0: Right. The, the, you right. say,
2: above all, do no harm. There's the right. harm of doing, and there's a harm of standing by and doing nothing.
0: Right. And and, and on the, the scale of doing harm, antibiotics are way down at the bottom of the list.
2: They are, and uh, they can be used well and safely, and uh, there's... Uh, really uh, great safety and uh, great efficacy when uh, they're properly used. So, so that's what I hope will happen is that some of the people who have um, Alzheimer's that's not too far gone uh, will have a chance at this. Just give them a chance. Right. See what happens. And, you know, if you can eradicate syphilis dementia with penicillin, syphilis and borelli are, are cousins. They both get into the brain. they both spirochetes. Why not give it a go?
0: So how does how do you go but about never, getting a trial like that started?
2: It, it won't it won't happen because of the power elite. You know there are people who uh, have uh, research funding to look at other things biochemically and in, in Alzheimer's disease, and there are biochemical things that are wrong in the in the brain with Alzheimer's disease. Sure, and all the funding is is, is directed towards keeping those grants alive and keeping those people employed and keeping those labs going. And uh, there is no funding for uh, infection-related causes of um, a spirochetal infection-related causes of uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, There's none of that.
0: Couldn't a drug company go after an off-label use of one of their antibiotics and find a whole new market for it?
2: It's not even off-label. I mean, <laughs> it, it's not even at, at that level of difficulty. It's, it's a spirochete, which responds to the antibiotics. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not uh, hazardous. It's not off-label. We, we give it all the time for mild cases of Lyme disease. We give it for other conditions, uh, pneumonias and things. So it's an infection. And you treat infection with antibiotics very simple it's you know, i mean i i used to have a higher iq i think my iq now is around 80 but even <laughs> with iq of 80 i could tell you that antibiotics couldn't hurt and they might help a lot yeah. yeah and i encourage people to think about it and maybe to rather than spend uh all of the life savings uh on uh, nursing home care. Uh, Go to Mexico
0: and get some IV antibiotics, huh?
2: Well, or uh, talk to their doctor and and have a reasoned uh, discussion about it and see whether they want to test the spinal fluid and see if they can find evidence of the infection in the spinal fluid. Nobody does that in Alzheimer's disease. No, no. Spinal fluid is an orphan body uh, liquid that is not uh, really examined in Alzheimer's disease. If I can grow... Living spirochetes from frozen, dead autopsy Alzheimer brain, and do it time and time again. And my colleague, Dr. McCloskey, in Europe does it too. And we don't know each other. We're coming up with the same result. And that's called validation. You know, one scientist does the work, and then another scientist who you're not cozy with or friends with in some other part of the world, like Switzerland does similar work and comes up with the same conclusions, that's called validation. That means that the science is good. Two people working independently in different parts of the world don't know each other, come up with the identical science results and conclusions. So it's been validated. It's not just uh, hearsay. There's a lot to recommend it.
0: It, i'm i'm convinced i have, I have well i think no you know power. it couldn't
2: it couldn't hurt and i think it could help and i think that that's what i want to see happen for at least some people who are ready to step up and say uh i know what the uh pathway is if i do nothing or if i take um Aricep. I know what the pathway is, uh, right. you know, and uh, uh, I might be around uh, for 10 years like Ronald Reagan. But the last eight years, he was in a vegetative state. I don't want to be in a vegetative state. I want to be able to wake up. I want to stay alert. I want to be able to uh, see my grandchildren, uh, dance at my children's wedding, that kind of stuff. I mean, all of that is, is what medicine is intended to do. And we're just talking about antibiotics, not dangerous dangerous drugs
0: not not irra- irradiating what was there's a study no, for a while no. done out of uh, hopkins on prisoners yeah, where no. they irradiated sinuses for sinus yeah. infections
2: right well there's lots of medical experimentation over the years that have been done in many countries but yeah this is not experimental this is um pretty much routine stuff any general practitioner who has a mind uh to uh partner with a patient who has Alzheimer's disease and try it out. Any general practitioner could do this and see if there's a result. It's that easy. Everybody has a prescription pad. And if the patient and the family and the general practitioner want to partner and go ahead and try it, I say go ahead because it worked in syphilis and we don't have syphilis dementia anymore period. It's gone. And that's because of penicillin.
0: Well said. You make a compelling, you make a compelling argument.
2: Well, it's an argument. It's, it's an appeal to humanity Uh, and it's an appeal to do something for a condition for which now we can do nothing. Yeah. So it's, we're supposed to be here to try to help people. And I have no profit motive. I don't write prescriptions. I don't see patients. I just do research. I'm giving this away for free. I have no profit motive. I have no stock in drug companies. Uh, you know, it's free. Everything I've done in 30 years is free.
0: Yeah. Well, they killed. Have, they killed John I, the Baptist, I believe.
2: Well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> I think I have seen the head on the plate. But uh, if you want to look uh, on the internet, you'll find um, lectures that I've done on YouTube goes into more of this in detail. They're free. Mm-hmm. Just dial McDonald's and Lyme into the YouTube uh, search box and you'll see. And you can listen to what I have to say about some of these things and, and uh, see what my point of view is and then talk to your doctor about it.
0: Great. Well, I'll be sure to include some of those links in the show notes section uh, so yeah. we'll be able to get to them very easily.
2: Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation to be with you.
0: You're very welcome. It's been oh, a pleasure delicious. to talk with you.
2: Pleasure. It's mine.
0: Thank you. All right. Good night. Good night.
1: So the cool thing about Dr. McDonald's research uh, is that he's been able to definitive, definitively prove the a link between... Well,
0: let's, uh, let's stop there for a second because it may not be definitive, but he's beginning to make that link and has some very interesting... Uh, research that's being done. I think we're very, as as a population, we like to really hold researchers in high regard and science in high regard. And we're very quick to say, oh, well, one study's been done and therefore it's definitive. So no, it's not definitive, but it sure is very interesting, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it's def- it is It's definitely interesting. And even Dr. McDonald, he isn't making any claims either, but Nevertheless, what is very interesting about the connection that he is describing is the fact that a bacteria can create an altered state of mind. Now, sometimes we can hear sometimes we hear about some of the some weirder bacteria's what what I have in mind is the crazy cat lady yes, syndrome. Yes,
0: toxoplasmosis.
1: Yes, that one. That is that survives only in cats' intestines and can create an altered can create an altered state of mind? And normally we think of that as an oddity and a rarity, but not something that uh, can happen every day. And I think what his research shows is that even more well-known bacteriums such as Lyme borreliosis can, in fact alter your mental state um, in ways that haven't been uh, paid attention to in ways that haven't been researched before.
0: Absolutely. And it's a huge problem there in the Lyme community. And more and more, I don't know more research needs to be done, but we need to pay more attention to it for sure. All right. That was a very interesting interview. Aurora, thank you for commenting. Thanks for joining us. If you want to leave feedback, and we beg you, please do leave feedback, the best way is to send us an email, and or the email address is...
1: You can reach us at feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com.
0: You can also leave comments on our website, and the website address is...
1: The website address is LimeNinjaRadio.com.
0: And we're still waiting for our first iTunes feedback uh, rating So please go to iTunes if you like this. Say something nice about us. If you hate us, don't say that on iTunes. Send it to us in an email. Is that a deal? Sounds like a deal. All right, everybody. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Lime Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ranger Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lyme Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.